If you want to open your Bibles with me, we'll be going all over the place, but if you want to start in the text, Luke 5.32 might be a place to cast your eyes on. You know, it's, I guess, our, just our custom to preach sequentially through a book of the Bible, and we're on hiatus from that for a, a few weeks. I'm eager to get back into that. I think it's so profitable for us to have a book of the Bible in front of us that we work through, not missing really any word or phrase to make sure that we see what God wants us to see rather than just what our own hearts would want to see. But we're taking a little bit of a break from that because while that's of incredible value, we also want to see that there are themes that run through the whole of Scripture. And the greatest theme of all most likely would be the gospel, the good news that God sent Jesus Christ to save sinners. And we're developing that idea. Uh, Last week we began, this week we'll continue in that. We want to consider the idea about conversion. The gospel is the message that God sent Jesus Christ to save sinners. As sinners hear that message, what are they being called to? What kind of response do they need to have? The kind of response that needs to happen could be summed up in a couple of words, One of the words could be conversion, another word could be repentance, and to a large degree, those are synonyms. This message of repentance is a theme that you'll find throughout the whole scripture. It's a thread that is woven through almost every page. Luke 5.32 sums up the message of Jesus. He declares, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To repentance. In one way of thinking, that's the message that Christ came with. He came to preach a message of repentance. If you know what repentance is, you know that it's hard. It's a hard message. Because it calls you to leave behind the things that you love in your heart, turn away from them, and find a new love. It's to say you no longer love your life as your own, but you love Jesus Christ as your Lord. That's the message. And it's hard because it's hard to turn away from sin that you love, sin that you hold dear. But this is the message from the start. John the Baptist preached this message in Matthew 3, 2. His first message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached the same message when he began his ministry, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call to repentance is a call to change or realignment. It's to align your allegiance from one spot to another. It's to turn from one direction to another direction. The gospel is good news. The message of repentance sounds like hard news. The gospel is good news because it calls on guilty sinners to receive forgiveness. The message of repentance is hard because it tells guilty sinners who love their sins to leave their sins behind. And yet you can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. The reason that repentance is so necessary is because the gospel, in the fullness of its message, is not only a message about the forgiveness of sins, but it's a message about a kingdom and a king. The gospel message is a message that there is a king who is Lord of everything, who's Lord of heaven and earth. In fact, the scriptures call it the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus, after he was risen from the dead, makes those famous words in Matthew 28, 18, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a big deal. That's big news. That there is somebody who claims that all authority in the known universe, seen and unseen, belongs to that individual person. And as soon as you begin considering the ramifications of that claim, realize that that's a big message. The message that God saves sinners is glorious. But we have to even go beyond that, that Jesus Christ is king. That's the gospel message, too. In fact, if you turn over to Acts chapter 2, you'll see this message in action. Acts chapter 2, verse 26, has Peter proclaiming the message of the gospel. And as he declares to these Jewish audience what the message is, he sums it up by saying that Jesus Christ was crucified, that Jesus Christ died and he did not see corruption. I'm sorry, I said Acts 2.26, it's Acts 2.36. He says that Jesus Christ was risen, and then in chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The primary sin that we commit is to reject God from being God over us. If you kind of get down to the core of all of our sin, it's fundamentally saying to God, I don't want you to rule over my life. I want to be king of my life. That's the primary sin. We reject him as king over us. Israel was born as a nation with God as their king. That was the design. God was to be their king. He was to rule over them, give them their law that they were to follow, and he would be their king. Well, it came to pass that Israel was not content with that. They looked at the nations around them, and they wanted a human king, and so they asked for a human king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, God speaks to the prophet Samuel and tells him, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Israel demonstrated the heart of their failure when they wanted another king besides God, and they rejected God from being king over them. They didn't want him to be Lord any longer over them. This idea and this heart attitude reaches horrific proportions when Jesus is on trial. Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who came as the King of Israel, the one who had every right to rule and to reign over the people of Israel, not just them, but the whole world, was handed over by the Jewish people for trial to be crucified. And as he's on trial before Pilate, Pilate brings Jesus out and declares to the people, behold your king. And as the people look at Jesus in kind of his mock royal garb with the crown of thorns on him, they declare, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate responds, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king 
But Caesar, once again, the sin, the heart attitude was to reject God in the flesh from being king over them. And they go to such a degree as to say, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't want the Lord to be Lord over them. They rejected him as king. So no wonder when Peter preaches the message of the gospel, he doesn't just bring a message of forgiveness of sins, although he brings that, but he brings a message of repentance towards the one that they have rejected as being king over them. And Peter declares, this Jesus, the one who you rejected, God has made both Lord and Christ. That's really important to know. That you know Jesus isn't just a Savior who comes and washes sins away from people. Though he does that, you need to know that he is both Lord and Christ. If you don't know that, then you will not experience conversion. You will not experience repentance. And you will not experience salvation. The gospel is that Jesus, the Lord, saves sinners. But it's important to know that Jesus, the Lord, will not have in his kingdom people who continue to rebel against his lordship. He calls for a surrender. He calls for you to raise the white flag and agree he is Lord. He calls you to do that. And that is repentance. It is raising that white flag, admitting that you have rejected Christ as Lord, and you no longer want to do that. You want to turn from that and receive him as the loving, forgiving Lord that he is. That's repentance. And that change that happens into us from going from a rebel against God and his king to being someone who welcomes the kingly reign of Christ over you in your life, that movement could be summed up as repentance, could be summed up as conversion. The central tenet that Christ is Lord is so crucial that we understand that then the central sin to us is to say that he isn't Lord. So to experience and receive the gospel is to move from him not being Lord to receiving him as Lord. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. This passage has been used very, very well and very, very poorly to describe what salvation is and how you receive it. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's the bad way that is used. Some people will take those words to mean that if you just speak out of your mouth a prayer that says Jesus is Lord and believe that he raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, then you are good to go. No matter how your life continues after that moment, don't let anybody tell you ever that you are not going to heaven. You've got a date in your Bible, you've got a card that you've signed, you've raised your hand, you've walked the aisle, you are good to go. And your life can be whatever you want it to be following that. That's not what this is talking about. The statement has been used flippantly 
But notice it uses substantial language to declare what is happening in your heart in regard to the Lord Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. That's not a flippant statement. That's coming out of the mouth who once said, Jesus is not in charge of my life, to going to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Not only that, but believing in your heart, belief is not just merely intellectual assent to agree that there is a statement that is true. It is to agree in the very core of your heart that this statement is true and you will live your life on the basis of its reality. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the same message that Peter preached to the people who crucified Jesus. So for those people to know that God raised him from the dead was absolutely essential for them to know that they cannot any longer treat Jesus as one they reject, but they treat him as king and Lord because God has put a stamp of approval on him by raising him from the dead. In other words, it's believing in your heart that God has made him both Lord and Christ and living that out. Conversion is more than a prayer once. It is a fundamental change of disposition from rebel to surrender. It's not walking the aisle or raising a hand. It is a life that is given over to Christ as Lord. Yes, that happens perhaps in a moment. Perhaps it happens when you raise your hand. Perhaps it happened when you walked the aisle. Perhaps it happened when you prayed that prayer, but it will be executed or lived out the rest of your life with Christ as Lord. That's the essence of conversion. Let's think for the remainder of our time in greater detail about what conversion is and what it looks like. Conversion, just as a definition, can be used of conversion of units. You can convert from Fahrenheit to Celsius, from inches to centimeters, from dollars to pounds. It's a change. Conversion... And the dictionary definition would be a change in which one adopts a new religion, faith, or belief. But in the Bible, conversion is repentance. It's leaving your former way of living to follow Christ. And while it's difficult to particularize the elements of your conversion and all the ramifications that happens in your life, I want to suggest to you this morning just three kind of elements of your life that repentance and true conversion will affect. It will affect your mind, it will affect your morals, and it will affect your will. Your mind, your morals, and your will. And we'll consider in brief the Apostle Paul's conversion as kind of a, a way to think through how conversion affects somebody. So let's start first with being converted in your mind. Converted in your mind, the place where you think. We're told that prior to coming to Christ, we live in darkness. It says in Acts 26, 18, that the apostle Paul would be an apostle, and his job would be to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light. So conversion could be thought of as moving from darkness to light, and that really entails moving from lies to truth. And if you move from lies to truth, you're moving from a mind that is swamped with deceit to a mind that is adhering to the truth. When Paul was converted, you need to remember that he was 
going about the business of trying to get Christians in trouble, trying to get them executed, trying to say that they were apostates from Judaism and that they needed to be dealt with in a swift and severe fashion. Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ on his road to go and execute more Christians. And he was converted in that moment. But when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, his eyes were blinded. And for three days, he lived in darkness. And as he lived in darkness, he had a lot of time to think. He had a lot of time to evaluate what was true and what was false, what was real and what was unreal, what were lies and what was truth. And as he came out from that blindness, scales fell from his eyes, and now he could see again. But certainly, the way that he saw wasn't the same. Oh, sure, before he saw trees, and afterwards he saw trees. Before he saw grass, and afterwards he saw grass. Before he saw green, and afterwards he saw green. Before he saw blue, and afterwards he saw blue. But you have to understand that the whole way of seeing everything was changed. He was converted in his mind. He came to agree with some certain truths that would influence the way that he saw everything. One of those truths is reflected in Colossians 1.15. He had formerly thought that Jesus Christ was a blasphemer, that he was a, a fake, a fraud, that he had no right or claim on God, but that he was completely heretical. But after those three days, after the scales fell off, he came to write this beautiful hymn to Christ in Colossians 1.15. He says, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him, and for him, and the him that he's referring to is Jesus Christ. So Paul had this transformation, this conversion in his mind, where he went from saying that Jesus was a heretic to saying Jesus is the creator. That's a mental conversion, a conversion from a lie to a truth. The scriptures are really clear about the state of our mind before Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, their minds were hardened. A veil lies over their hearts. Our minds are hard like a stone. It's almost impenetrable to the truth. We receive truth and it just bounces off of us like water bounces off of a rock. And we want nothing to do with it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, Our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Did you catch that? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So unbelievers live in a world that is blind to the truth of the most glorious being in the universe. But this is a culpable blindness. It's a moral blindness as well. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it calls all people those who suppress the truth. And in verse 21 of Romans 1, it says that we are futile in our thinking. Our thinking is futile. Our thinking is darkened. Our thinking is hard. Our minds need changing. We need to be converted in our way of thinking. We suppress the truth. You see this to preposterous degrees in our world. You see how darkened the mind of the unbeliever is, and but for the grace of God, there go I. 
We think the ways that are so preposterous, the unbelieving world does. We think such preposterous claims as there is no God. We think such illogical things like matter and energy came from nothing, that nothing created everything. We think such blasphemous things as God is immoral for ruling the universe. We stand in judgment over God. We consider good to be evil and evil to be good. We think that we can do whatever we want and get away with it. We think Jesus is a a historical myth. We think that the Bible is corrupt. We think that there are many ways to God. And on and on it goes. We conjure up all of these lies that we live our lives based on. Lamentations 3 verse 40 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them, that is his opponents, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We need to move from lies to truth. We see Paul doing this in Acts chapter 17 when he goes to the city of Athens and he sees this city full of idols all over the place. It's so full of idols that he comes to one shrine that says, to the unknown God. The futility of man in unbelief is so extreme that they create an idol to an unknown God. And the one God that they do not know is the only real, true, and living God. That's how futile our way of thinking is, apart from God's revelation to us, that we concede that we do not know the one true God. And Paul proceeds to proclaim to them the one true God, to let them know who he is. He just gives them facts about him, that he is one who is not served by human hands, that he does not live in temples made by man, that he doesn't need anything, that he made all people of all kinds, that he determines their living place, their dwelling place. He just gives them facts about this God. And so his You sit in your darkened mind. You need to start to reckon with the truths of God, who he is and what he's like, that he's real and not fake, that there is one and not many, that he's true and not false, that he's living and not dead, that he is creator and not created. Those are truths that darkened minds need to come to realize are true. You can see Paul's transformation in his own conversion toward the Lord Jesus Christ as he once considered Jesus to be dead and then was converted to believe that he was alive. He once considered Jesus to be a blasphemer, but then he came to consider Jesus as Lord. He once came to think that Jesus' followers were deserving of persecution and he afterwards came to think Jesus' followers are worth fellowshipping with. We need to be converted in our mind. Converted thinking pursues truth as revealed by God. Converted thinking is going to start with a humble posture, realizing that you cannot arrive at truth in your own heart, but you need God's revelation. Converted thinking is going to come to the realization that Jesus declared that he is the truth. And accept and embrace that. It recognizes that truth is not ultimately abstract, but it is personal, and it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. 
the converted mind will camp on this verse, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. My friends, if any of you aren't embracing Jesus Christ as Lord, you need to reckon seriously with the claims that he has made. Jesus has said unabashedly, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus declared all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said that after he rose from the dead, and so you also need to deal with his claim that he is alive and not dead. You need to reckon with those. Are those true or are those lies? But you cannot just sweep them under the rug like they've never been said or stated or made. You need to deal with them, and you need to let your mind come to the conclusion that they are true. Embrace that reality that there is a Lord over heaven and earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. You need to be converted in your mind. That's not the end of conversion. It's not as though you come to the conclusion, oh, there is a God, and you're good to go. Or, oh, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead, and that's all that it entails. That's not the end of conversion. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. Because you also need to be converted in your morality. You need to be converted in your morality. And this is probably the typical way that you think of conversion or repentance. You think of somebody who is a sinner no longer sinning in the same ways. You could think of the drug addict who drops the needle and no longer shoots up. You can think of the drunk who leaves the alcohol, dumps it down the toilet. You can think of the abuser who stops the abuse. You think of the blasphemer who tames his tongue, the adulterer who gives up that adulterous relationship, the prostitute who leaves the streets, the murderer who puts down his weapon. All of those would be conversion in one sense, to move from one level of sin to leave that behind and pursue another path. But it's really crucial to understand why you must leave those things behind. Most people in the world would agree, yeah, murder is wrong. Adultery is not good. It hurts relationships. You might think that drug abuse is just harming your body and really shouldn't do it for your own personal good. And certainly, we understand that. But there's more to biblical conversion than just acknowledging that what you're doing is hurting yourself or hurting somebody else. When you are truly converted in your morality, you are surrendering your right to decide what is right and wrong, and you are placing the right to decide what is right and wrong in the hands of the only just judge, God himself. There's a big difference between just saying, Murder hurts people, so I won't do it. And saying, there is a judge in heaven who says that is wrong, therefore I will not do it. True conversion will acknowledge that there is a God who has a law in heaven and expects the people on earth to follow that. And you submit yourself to it. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked Forsake his way. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You've heard before that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That's true, then the greatest commandment that you break is to not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the greatest sin that you need to repent of is not loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's not homosexuality. It's not blasphemy, and it's not lies. It is not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the main sin you need to repent of. You need to turn from your loveless heart towards God and turn to love Him. You need to stop pretending like He is not Lord and God who cares for you and living your own life however you want. You need to surrender to Him as Lord. That's the main moral in this universe. Atheists like to say that there is no real morality that you could arrive at that you really need God for. They say, you know, I can arrive at knowing that it's wrong to murder on my own. I can arrive at knowing it's wrong to lie on my own. I don't need God to tell me that. Okay. won't concede that. I think you only know that because God has written that on your heart. But there is no atheist who would say that the greatest morality in the universe is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They will not say that. And yet, my friends, that is the greatest commandment. That's more important than all of them. That's the greatest morality. Now, you can look at God's standard of righteousness and perfection and realize you fall woefully short. And you need to repent of those things that are in your life, of the lying, of the adultery, of the deceit, of the murderous hatred in your heart. You need to repent of those things. But I think the, the main thing that needs to be surrendered, the main thing that Jesus actually targeted in people, the main thing that really got Jesus riled up was not so much the tax collectors and prostitutes in their reprobate lives. The thing that got Jesus riled up and the thing that he called people to turn from is self-righteousness. That's the real plague, is self-righteousness. That's where we, as church people, probably most of all need to be converted, is from our self-righteousness. That's what Paul needed to be converted from. Paul considered himself, under the law, one who was blameless. He didn't murder. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't say bad words. But when Paul met Jesus, the thing that he had to let go of, was not murder and adultery, not lying and thieving. The thing he had to let go of was his stack of righteous deeds that he had thought he had done. That's what he had to let go of. The reason your righteousness does not count in God's scales is because your righteousness never can match his perfection. You never reach that perfection. And in fact, you sin 
when you count your righteousness as good enough to please God because you ignore what he says about your righteousness, that it is like filthy rags. And you put credit on which God puts no credit. Paul in Philippians 3, and it will be worth turning there so you can see it. Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes this conversion. Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul became so enamored with the Lord Jesus Christ as he met him. He saw the glory of Christ. He saw how pure he was, how beautiful he was. And the light of Christ shone on the righteous deeds of Paul and showed that they weren't righteous at all. They were filth. They were rubbish. They were trash, worthy of the dump heap. And so Paul let go of that righteousness, and he saw, I want that righteousness. I want Christ's righteousness. That's what I need. And he let go of all of his filth, and he went to Christ with empty hands so that Christ would give him his righteousness. That's conversion in his morality, in his morals, knowing that he doesn't have what it takes to heap up the righteousness he needs. He needs Christ's righteousness. And he comes empty-handed and accepts that righteousness. That's not to say that Paul now lives a life of licentiousness, doing whatever he wants. No, he is so overwhelmed with the righteousness of Christ that he wants to be like him. He goes on to say that in any means possible that he might know Christ and become like him in his death. He became so enamored with Christ that it doesn't matter what else it costs, he wants to become like Christ. And that's what defines his morals. Walking in the example of Christ. We need our morality converted. Yes, you need to admit that the sins that God considers sins are actually sins. You need to confess that, but you also need to confess that your righteousness does not match up with God's righteousness. Romans chapter, one, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, shows this is a common problem. When he talks about his Jewish brethren, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God For them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. When you're converted and you call Christ Lord, you surrender your own standard of righteousness. You surrender your own merit of righteousness. And you accept Christ's righteousness credited to your account and you seek after Christ in obedience to him. That's the conversion of your morality. If you're relying on yourself, 
on your own righteousness to get you to heaven, you'll never get there. You never climb that ladder. You need to give that up. You need to embrace Christ. If you are counting on you being the determiner of what is right and wrong, you will find that you are wrong. You cannot go to God one day and say, I lived according to my standards. God will say back to you that you didn't live according to mine. And so you need to surrender that morality as well and accept God's standard for what's right and wrong. You need to be converted in your mind. You need to be converted in your morality. And you need to be converted in your will. In your will. One of the key elements that occurs in conversion is that you surrender your will to Christ and you follow Him. What I mean by will is your plans, your purposes, your wants, your desires that determine what you do. That's a big thing to give up. Because every day we wake up thinking about what I want to do, how I want my day to go. And we get really upset when people and things get in the way of what we want. We have short-term plans. We have long-term plans. We have a plan for our day about what we have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have long-term plans about what college we're going to go to, what kind of person we're going to marry, what kind of retirement fund we're going to have, what kind of retirement living we're going to have, what kind of car we're going to buy. We have all of these plans for our time, for our life, and sometimes it extends out into other people's lives too, and we get upset when they don't follow our plans for their life. We are so full of planning. We have so many things we want to do. And what I'm suggesting to you is that biblical conversion sets that aside and says, what I want to do is what I want Christ wants me to do. That's conversion in your will. Think of what Jesus Christ said so many times. In fact, he begins to kind of prep us for it when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you pray that and you think about what you pray, you got to realize that God's will may not be in align with your will, and if there's a misalignment, then you got to get your will aligned with his. It's not that God aligns his with yours. And so Jesus preps us for this idea, but then he goes on. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 19 says, Follow me. In Matthew 8, 22, he says, Follow me. In Matthew 9, 9, he says, Follow me. In Matthew 10, 38, he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he says to Peter in John 21, 22, you follow me. He's not ambiguous about what he wants. He wants us to follow him. When you follow someone else, you're submitting your wills to theirs. You're saying, your will be done in my life. You be consumed in their will. You hear Christ calling you to this. You hear him calling you, follow me. Do you hear his voice? His sheep hear his voice. They follow him. If you're not following Christ, you're not his sheep. If you don't hear his voice, you're not his sheep. You have to follow him. 
You have to be converted in your will. Oh, we don't do it perfectly. There's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that we do it perfectly. But is the trajectory of your life one where you continually come back and submit to the will of Christ? When you don't follow him, does your heart hurt and think, I didn't follow Christ today. I want to follow him tomorrow. Give me grace to follow you, Lord. Is that your heart's desire? Do you know he's your shepherd who's going to bring you back into the fold, bring you back into the path, lead you beside still waters and into green pastures? Do you follow him? This is so much more than saying, I gave my life to Christ on May 23rd, 1989, and I'm good to go. Nobody can take that away from me. Oh, this is a lifetime of following Christ. Well, how far do you follow him? How long do you follow him? You follow him wherever he leads you. It may cost you your friends. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your life. It may cost you your money. But if you follow Christ, it will not cost you your eternal life. It will not cost you your eternal friend. It will not cost you eternal riches because you have Christ. This penetrates to every element of your life. Christ as Lord should affect your parenting. It should affect your job. It should affect your money. It should affect your house. It should affect your relationships. It should touch all of you. This is a lot. This is heavy about what Christ calls us to. He knows that. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the grace. His mercies are new every morning. You submit your life to him, and you will find that he will lead you to greater joys than you would know if you went your own way. Oh, it might lead to harder trials than you would know if you go your own way too, but you will see a loving Savior who walks you through the valley of the shadow of death. He will be with you. Conversion is a lot. Conversion is serious. True conversion means losing a lot. In certain Jewish circles, becoming a Christian is considered to be a departure from family, from community, from the nation, and that conversion is considered as mortal a threat as that posed by the Nazis, quote. Rabbis are fond of saying that there are two ways to exterminate a Jew, kill him or convert him. Conversion is so transformative that it's almost as if your previous identity is lost and you become now found in Christ Jesus and that's what defines you. And other people might not like it. It may look like you're separating from family and friends, from even nation. And you may get some pushback on that. In certain communities in the Muslim world, Muslims think that by rejecting Islam as the final complete source of religious truth, the Christian takes himself or herself out of the community. In fact, for somebody who's been baptized, moving from Islam to Christianity, they're demonstrating that they accept the appropriation of Christ's death and resurrection as the basis of salvation. And now they encounter, quote, Islam's law of apostasy that states that such heretical action should result in death. At the very least, the Christian is cut off from the benefits of community life, access to financial, material, legal, social, and psychological support systems. In practical terms, the person is regarded as non-existent or dead. Sometimes, a funeral service is even held. 
for the Muslim who converts to Christianity in certain cultures. Seems extreme, doesn't it? It's hard. But what does Christ call us to? To die with him, that we might live with him. That's the kind of life that Christ has called us to. Early Christian named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was martyred sometime around February 23rd, 155 AD. Prior to his martyrdom, because he was flaunting his worship of Christ and not Caesar, he was instructed and urged to say and declare, Caesar is Lord. If he said that, he'd be let off the hook. If he declared Caesar is Lord, he'd be good to go. In the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord and sacrifices were offered to him. But in agreement with Romans 10.9, which declares that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, Polycarp refused to declare Caesar is Lord and declared Jesus is Lord. And he lost his life. That's how far it goes. Christ your Lord? Is Christ the Lord of your mind? Is he the Lord of your morality? Is he the Lord of your will? He deserves to be, doesn't he? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us the conviction and confidence to follow Christ as Lord into all areas of our life. He deserves it. He demands it. Pray, Father, that we would not be cowards, but you would strengthen us to follow him wherever he would lead. Lord, those areas of our mind that still cling to lies, I pray that you would correct us. Wherever we are holding on to our self-righteousness and, or to our sin, I pray that you'd lead us away from that. Father, wherever we have yet to surrender to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would lead us to give our life over to him. Father, I pray that this serious message would not produce Uh, despair. I pray, Father, that you would actually give us hope and see how good Christ is, who is our Lord. I pray that we would not see him as one who is hard, who is an unforgiving master, but one who is gentle and meek and lowly, who tells us to take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Oh, Father, let, me, let us follow him, each one of us, with our whole hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.